Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode two of our podcast. Today, we are doing a special podcast where I'm going to be doing a guest host. I am David Hoffmaster, and here today is the host of our podcast, Jacob Hagstrom. Jake is a dear friend of mine, a West Point graduate, a former Army captain who was with me in Hawaii with the 235 Infantry Battalion, Cacti, and in the Kunar region of Afghanistan. He is a PhD graduate of Indiana University and a current professor at the Citadel. So, welcome to your own podcast, Jake. How are things? Doing well, Dave. Good to be here. Uh, excited to start on this podcast journey with you. Yeah, I'd say we have a bit of a wild journey here with our friends and a, certainly a new journey with our nonprofit. I'd say for me personally, it's an exciting one. So thanks for taking the time to set this up. I'm excited to watch you as you grow this podcast, and it's an honor to talk with you here in this forum. So let's get things rolling. In our first podcast, you started things off talking about West Point. I know that I've talked to you about this a lot personally in, in Afghanistan and at West Point, but I would love to hear what got you interested in the Army, what got you interested in going to West Point. Maybe it was your family, maybe something personal. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? It's hard for me to trace because uh, my dad went to West Point. He was an 84 grad and he was an aviation officer. And so growing up, I had always known about that. I had always uh, known about West Point growing up. Uh, and in fact, I was really fascinated by it as a child growing up. And I would always try to get my dad to like, give me different challenges like they would do at West Point. And I remember him saying like, there can't be a, a kid's version of West Point. It's like a serious thing. It's an adult thing. So he, my dad also like intentionally didn't let us do stuff like Boy Scouts. He was very wary of like uh, seeming like he was pushing us in the military direction, but in a strange way, it kind of gave it this mystique for me. So I was always kind of interested in that growing up. And then uh, the real interest in uh, West Point came to me after September 11th. And I don't know about you, but I, I've talked to a lot of other people from our generation who say that's a, a really kind of critical moment uh, in their adolescence, and it was for me. So I was a freshman in high school uh, when 9-11 happened. And I remember uh, just feeling like history was changing and like uh, that the United States was under threat. Um, when I think about these things now, it, it seems a little bit naive, but this is really how I felt uh, as an adolescent, very impressionable, obviously. And, and it was clear to me, regardless of whether the United States was doing the right thing, that this was clearly something important that was happening in history. And so uh, I wanted to be involved in that. And so West Point seemed like um, the choice that would put me in that direction compared to other colleges that I had applied to. Sure. Yeah, I can Yeah, I remember that as well. It was freshman year. I don't know how much that impacted me. I think I knew almost like you that I wanted to go to West Point before 9-11 even happened. Um, but I can I can certainly remember being at, you know, going through class that day. I don't think our teachers really even told us what was really going on until later in the day. And I remember being at football practice or about to go to football practice as a freshman and having that canceled and kind of being a little bit excited because I was just tired and wanted to go home and not realizing that 9-11 had happened and then just riding the bus home to, to my house and seeing that all over the news and just kind of being shocked by all that as well. Um, but it kind of sounds like you already had your mind made up that that was something 
that you were going to do regardless, possibly? I don't think so. I really, and even even after 9-11, I mean, I was a freshman, so I didn't really start applying to schools until junior year. But I think um, that's one of the things that made me go in a military direction because it seemed like the military actually had a job to do already, uh, that this was something that I could see was happening. And I knew that, that West Point graduates would be deployed. And I thought that I felt a certain kind of duty, like they they say the West Point motto is duty, honor, country. And I felt a certain kind of, um, if I was able-bodied and I was uh, capable of, of serving in the military during a time of war, I felt like I should do that. As you were talking there, I had just a, a thought in terms of you talking about your father there. Have you ever thought about that kind of concept of if West Point or the Army should be uh, glorified or if that should be something that is taught to the younger generation at what age do you think that could be you know I have my own uh, son and daughter at this point so I've clearly thought about that and had that question raised to me if I would want them to go to West Point how do you how do you feel about that I think it's a really tricky situation I mean uh, <laughs> and again I think my dad like from what he consciously told me I think the last thing he wanted was for his son to to be in the army and, and especially for a son to be in yeah. Afghanistan during the war. But, right. uh, so he very consciously said things like, you know, the boy scouts is like, kind of like training for the army and I don't want to subject my children to that. And he would say things like, you can do whatever you want and you should, you know, follow whatever your interests are. But, um, at the same time, like we did, we went to West Point for football games. So I had seen that uh, I was I went to uh, West Point for uh, lacrosse camp as a high school student. Um, did you ever think about being a squid <laughs> going to the Naval Academy? No, I didn't apply to the Naval Academy. Good I applied you, to Air Force. I, I applied to Air Force. And so that was probably I would have gone there if I hadn't gone to West Point. Okay. No offense to our, our Air Force Navy friends, just a little bit. But. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> That's good. So you, you get to West Point. We'll start freshman year. You know, you can feel free to talk about your initial encounter of Beast for those listening. That's kind of the West Point version of basic training that we all go through the summer before we start our academic year. Um, so how did you feel going through all that? Did you regret it instantly? <laughs> I did have a few moments in Beast when I thought, what did I get myself into? Uh, and it's hard to explain, I think, to someone who hasn't been through it. Um, I think the best I could do is just to, to say that you never really have time to relax. You're always, your time is really structured. And so you're always kind of rushing from one thing to the next. And it's also the feeling that if you screw something up, you could get kicked out for it. I don't know if you felt that during Beast, but that's what I, I was really afraid of that. And looking back on it, I kind of realized then as a junior, I became a cadre or a leader uh, for Beast and for the new cadets coming into West Point. You kind of realized that you would have to screw up quite a bit to get kicked out during Beast or you'd have to just quit voluntarily. But I remember really being worried about this, that like, if I didn't memorize my knowledge, I might get kicked out. We were given a knowledge book and told to memorize different things about West Point and facts about the army. And I remember really being kind of uh, paranoid that if I wasn't on top of my knowledge and really learning as much as I could and being the best new cadet that I could be, that I, would, I was in danger of being kicked out. 
Yeah, yeah. And I, I think um, just because I was on the basketball team and, and had maybe a little bit more happy-go-lucky personality, I, I not necessarily wasn't worried about that as much, but it certainly wasn't fun. And I know for you, you are more of a serious person at times, not all the time, but I, I can understand you're also a very intelligent person. And so Beast probably was not the most fun. Uh, and memorizing just countless, I mean, it was, it was a whole book of mostly meaningless information. Yeah, right. But yeah, my main, my main memory of Beast is just being, you know, standing at parade rest. So you're standing in an uncomfortable position in the sun, you're sweating. You want to just like sit down and like crack open a nice cold beverage of some kind, Coke or Coors Light or whatever it may be. And that's totally out of the question. So that it's those little things that like, if you're forced to, to abstain from that for six weeks or eight weeks, then uh, it starts to wear on you. But, uh, and I remember um, just thinking that the purpose of Beast was just basically to introduce people to West Point in the same, in a similar way that basic training is just to introduce civilians to the army. So a lot of it is just getting people used to being on a schedule and uh, getting used to the hierarchy of the, of the army and like learning what different duty positions meant within the army um, and learning how to march and salute and all those kind of basic superficial things. So that, that really didn't change from my perspective as a new cadet to, uh, to being a leader in that position. Um, and I think uh, in terms of making maybe a more broad statement about training at West Point versus training in the Army, I felt that training at West Point was very well managed and very well run. Uh, that you had, because you basically had two kind of hierarchies superimposed on each other. One that was the cadet chain of command. So the students at West Point are take some responsibility for the training, but they're really kind of supervised by the, the tactical officers who are assigned to West Point, who are captains or majors in the army, have any, had anywhere from 10 to 15 years of service. And so they're kind of making sure that things don't really go off the rails in ways that we did see, I think, as young lieutenants and, and junior captains, things could go off the rails pretty quickly during army training. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we got pretty lucky at West Point, with that being said, knowing that most of the, the as you said, tactical officers, attack officers that were training us and were in charge of us, you know, had, like you said, had, had about 10 years of experience. And a lot of that was, in a, it was, almost all of it was wartime. You know, some of the people there uh, had almost just come from Afghanistan or Iraq, I felt like. And they were, you could tell they were taking it very serious because they knew that probably within a year or two, a lot of us would be in the same situation. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one thing that West Point did drive home was um, the graduates, the recent graduates who had come back to the campus to speak, uh, the little incidents like uh, during lunchtime when the whole corps is standing at attention about to eat lunch all together in the same mess hall and they would read out the graduates who had recently been killed or wounded. Uh, so the war was very real at West Point. And I think you're right that uh, that new uh, leadership uh, course, the summer course that they developed, that CLDT, uh, which we were a part of that, the first wave of that, was basically trying to get more tactical training into the West Point curriculum. Uh, I feel like one of the strengths of West Point that maybe didn't translate directly into your job as being a lieutenant 
was that West Point gave you kind of a broader appreciation for learning and education uh, and maybe different opportunities that aren't available at other places. So, uh, for example, when I was a junior, I got the opportunity to do a, a, a three week exchange with the military academy in Senegal. And so I went to Africa for three weeks and talked to African cadets and trained with them a little bit. Uh, it was sponsored by the French department. So ostensibly I was supposed to be working on my French language skills, which I did a little bit, but I think overall it was just good to be able to travel to see, uh, an example of a foreign military. Um, and then I was able again, through the French department, my junior year, year to do a whole semester at a French university. Um, and so those kind of opportunities, I think, are pretty unique to West Point, at least in the military education sense. Um, but yeah, I agree that that West Point really hammered home the sciences and really hammered home math. Even as a, a French and history major, I had to take a lot of math courses. I had to take a lot of engineering courses. Uh, so all the things that we did in basic officer leader course, right, as lieutenants, when we were going through that initial training in artillery, the math was no problem. And I felt confident I could learn whatever the army was going to throw at me after I'd graduated from West Point. Yeah, that's that's well said. I think the opportunities that West Point gives you are very underappreciated at times while you're there. I don't think I took advantage of them as much, but I still had a good time. Now, for you, that is an interesting kind of follow-up question when I was thinking you are someone that has pursued academia uh, following the army, you know, and so you were someone, I forget what, it, uh, I'll, I'll, you can exp- go ahead and what, what, which one was that? I was in, uh, I was a huge nerd at West Point. So I was, I was highly ranked academically. I was always, uh, during the army kind of missing the, the intellectual, uh, side of West Point. Uh, and so I, I felt like in some ways, like the best times uh, at West Point for me were working on history papers and learning about history. And so when I was in the army, I'd always kind of thought of that as another potential career path. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got out of the army, but I applied to a bunch of different graduate programs and I found one at Indiana University where I was going to work with a bunch of uh, historians that I really respected and liked their work. And uh, it turned out that uh, I got a job teaching history at the Citadel uh, and specifically teaching military history. So it kind of has come full circle for me at this point uh, from taking classes at West Point and really enjoying the history then to making it a profession. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and we'll, we'll definitely swing back through that because I think that's a very important part of, I guess, your current life and everything. How did you feel, I guess, at West Point? Did you know for sure that you wanted to do French and uh, you did international history, I believe. How did education play into just how you viewed West Point? Um, how, how did it impact your daily life, I should say? Yeah, some of my favorite uh, times at, at West Point were uh, either being in history class. I remember my, my favorite professor was Clifford Rogers, who taught medieval history. Yeah. And he was such a great lecturer. He had such a breadth and depth of knowledge about the topic that he was right. just masterful at pulling out different examples and, and creating a, a compelling analysis of these texts that were so far removed and seemed so kind of mysterious to, to an outsider. It was really kind of 
magical to be in his class. And he took, took such care with it that he would introduce each class with some kind of music like medieval history be some kind of like Gregorian chant or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, but it really kind of put you in the mood and it was that kind of level of detail and level of care in the class that really attracted me to, to studying history more. Oh, I absolutely agree on that 100%. I remember Professor Nimitz, who is in the, the Chinese department, I felt the exact same way. So I'm going to give a, a little shout out to a high school teacher of mine, uh, Mr. Ron Frederick, who was was one of the few teachers in high school that really impacted me in that same way, where he, he was in our literature English department and just he made that kind of impact where you wanted to learn more and take that education seriously. And he encouraged you to, to, and then with professor Nimitz, same thing. I remember we had a class for thesis where he was making us read almost two to three history books a week and just almost taking them apart and finding the inherent bias in each book. And that made us just have to study it, study the author and, and almost be like, all right, well, you, you know, for the most part, people consider history to be unbiased, I guess, if you're younger and, and you, you don't really have that educational background yet. But it was just such a just a joy to learn that. And I think I've carried that with me ever since. And it's helped me just immensely. That's that's one of the hardest things, I think, as an adolescent is to figure out what are the sources of authority and how do you critique a source of authority? So someone has written this book and you yeah. don't you don't just read the book and agree with everything you kind of question how did he come to that conclusion what kind of sources are they using what's this person's background and maybe what are they driving at so yeah i think that historical thinking can help people a lot in the present day because i think that in order for people to understand how we got to the present moment uh, and we're now in the midst of not only a global pandemic but also in a massive social movement, a moment of upheaval in the United States. And I think that it's essential to understand history if we're going to figure out where we are right now and, and even to begin to venture about what should be done in the future. Uh, I think history has a great power to show how change has happened over time. Uh, and there are no clear answers. And uh, there's I certainly don't want to suggest that we can just apply examples from the past to the present. But I think that if you're looking for a guide as to what are the potential options, what has been tried in the past, um, and what would be more radical, um, not to say that's not useful too, but I think that history can give a useful guide to understanding uh, where we are in our current moment. Yeah, and I think I'd like to kind of touch base on that a little bit further when we talk about maybe some of your time in Afghanistan. Uh, but what else about West Point? I, you know, when you think back, how do you feel in terms of friendships and camaraderie and in terms of the importance of that? To give you an example from uh, Camp Buckner, just one little example of a field training. We had walked all day, probably 10 miles or something like that through the woods, over hills, and we get to a patrol base. And so we're there cleaning our weapons, like really tired, ready to go to sleep. We go to sleep and it starts raining and then there's like a monsoon where like different <laughs> tents are literally like getting washed over each other down the hill into other tents and like you just at the time you're, you're thinking like this is the worst but then you you get up the next morning everyone's still there everyone's like man that sucked like 
And you develop that kind of camaraderie that's like, it's impossible to do unless you've been walking all day and then can't sleep at night because your tent's getting rained on and, you know, shoveled off into the next guys. And like, that's the, that's the thing that's just, unless you've experienced it, you can't really communicate that bond that you develop with those people. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. It's, it sucks when you're <laughs> going through that for a couple of days in a row, but you know, looking back, it's, it's all laughs. And it, for me, at least, you know, it's, it's a funny memory and it, it's a good memory. Um, you know, so I guess as we, as you transition, now we get to the real army, you commission as a second Lieutenant, same time that I do. And we know that we're both going to Hawaii. You decided to go to ranger school for a little bit. We can skip that. So uh, I failed out. I don't want to skip it. I should admit to that. I failed out. Um, I'm proud of it. I'm proud that I, I'm, I'm proud that I at least tried to go and saw what it was like. I passed the zero day. I did my pushups, did my six chin-ups. Uh, you got hurt, right? Or something? I was, yeah, I was like kind of injured, like in a small way during uh, land navigation. So I kind of like tweaked a muscle and then I, I couldn't finish the ruck march out to, uh, it was leaving Darby, basically going to the first phase um, at, right. at Fort Benning. But so I was there for a week, uh, very quickly left Ranger School and went out to Hawaii. And I will say that was a big thing of like just the mentality of Ranger School. I think if my assignment had been Fort Polk, I would have been a little bit more motivated. But kind of knowing Hawaii was in the back of my mind, it's, it's almost like the opposite of like the conquistadors where they're like, yeah, go on the ships and then burn the ships. Like you're not going back. Whereas yeah. like me at Ranger School it was like anytime I ring the bell, I'm going to Hawaii. So <laughs> it's, it was hard psychologically. Yes. Well, I, I welcomed you with open arms. I was waiting for you there in, in Hawaii. And so you get to Hawaii and you join 325 Cacti. And what did you... How did you, I guess, deal with the transition from West Point to the, the real army then? To me, it was great because I, I love the, the intellectual atmosphere at West Point, but uh, the social atmosphere was pretty stifling. So it was really uh, encouraging to move out to Hawaii and like have all these great opportunities and have your own place and not have, have someone coming in to inspect to see whether your drawers were all in order. Like at West Point, you know, we would have room inspections. Um, we had to eat all our meals in certain places. Like there was a lot more freedom in being a lieutenant. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed that uh, to the fullest in Hawaii. Yeah, absolutely. I think we are all kind of just itching to get out there into the real army. By the time you're a senior at West Point, you're, you're just dying to get into the army and get into action get your be with your other guys, be in kind of what we consider the real life in some ways. But also then it kind of hits, there's a little bit of a reality that sets in when you then again realize that you're again a junior person in the army with almost no experience compared to most of the people there. How did you tackle that obstacle? I thought uh, I got very lucky being in the, the units that we were. We had really good role models and we had a good... Uh, command structures already in place. Uh, and so I felt good about our, our units training. Um, we did a bunch of uh, 
So I was in uh, 3-7 to start the deployment, so which was the artillery unit. Um, and so as an artillery battalion, our main uh, training objective was to be able to provide indirect fires, to, so to fire howitzers. Uh, we trained on 105 millimeter howitzers in Hawaii, and then we took over 155 millimeter howitzers in Afghanistan. So it was a little bit tricky because the training we did early on was all on 105s. Uh, we did a couple of rotations to uh, what was called PTA or the Pahakalua training area, which was on the big island. We couldn't shoot artillery on Oahu, which is where we were stationed. So we did kind of a month long uh, mini deployment to the big island to shoot artillery. And then when we went to the National Training Center in California, we finally got to work on the 155 millimeter howitzers, the ones we were firing in Afghanistan. Another thing that I know uh, Cacti did, um, I know 3-7, the Field Artillery Battalion did too, was they would make, they would have a training session and then they would have a competition based on the training. And right. I think that really helped a lot. People really wanted to be the best fire direction center, the best FDC. They wanted to have the gun with the fastest time. They wanted to, right. you know, have that kind of small unit pride. Um, I think especially for the uh, for the NCOs and the enlisted guys, they would get really fired up about competitions. Uh, so that really stuck with me. How do you feel about that? Can you explain a little bit more? I, I agree with you. It was the same, you know, on the, the fire support side, the fist exercises and coming from a sports background, which you also played lacrosse there at West Point. It's, it's something very similar to sports where it, it drives you to want to do better. No one wants to kind of be the one that is sucking and, and falling behind, especially when you know you're about to go to Afghanistan and there's life and death on the line. You don't want to be the one that's dragging everyone else down. It's not everyone, but I think the type of people who join the army do have uh, a competitive streak in them usually. And it just adds kind of another level of excitement to something. No, I think about like, did you watch that Jordan documentary? Yeah, The Last Dance, of course. Yeah. The funniest part about it was when Jordan was just sitting around all the bodyguards, like all the security for the United Center, and they're just like flipping coins and trying to see how close they can get the coin to the wall. And Jordan yes. like engages with them and wants to compete with them. That competitive <laughs> edge is just never like any little thing. I think if you add like, hey, I'm going to beat you, I'm going to get closer. It just pushes people. Yes. And I think there's probably some uh, interesting, it would be cool to study his brain. There's probably something a little bit different. <laughs> in, yeah, I guess that's the, the best word I'll use because I don't want to talk bad about one of my childhood heroes of the Bulls. I had, I had my brother and I had a Bulls, I, I, we took permanent markers and we had an unfinished basement and we drew a Bulls court <laughs> with permanent marker on our our parents uh basement i'm not sure how they feel about that but it's still there to this day um so i can't talk bad about michael jordan that's for sure but yeah so the 90s bulls we were the bravo company bulls the bulls were our mascot uh yeah people do people get into that unit pride and i think especially the small unit pride the right. you know the battalion i didn't think there was a whole lot of real pride in the battalion so much as it was like your company or your platoon uh, or even your squad for the enlisted guys. At that point, this is 2010, transitioning to 2011 when we deployed to Afghanistan. 
that that's just a, such an interesting concept to me that I've been thinking about more and more as I'm getting older. The fact that we were 24 in charge of 30 people and going to one of the most highly combat engaged area in all of Afghanistan, especially from an artillery perspective for you, but also from the infantry perspective where I was, it was kinetic all the time, almost, you know, almost daily. And so when you got there, what did that look like for you uh, from the start? And then kind of walk me through that. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that attracted me to being an artillery officer was that you'd have different roles as a lieutenant. Uh, so there, there were some lieutenants who were uh, focused on the guns and actually providing the artillery support. And then the other half was with the infantry, uh, attached to infantry units and observing telling people where they needed to put those fires. And so my deployment was split in half like that. So the first half of it, I was a platoon leader in Nangarhar province. I was in charge of 25 guys and we had two 155 millimeter howitzers and we almost never used them. We use them very, very infrequently. And I think that had to do with the fact that it was a, you know, in a counterinsurgency you're supposed to use firepower in a different way than in a conventional fight. So to me, it always seemed like, especially as an artillery officer, if we're using artillery, there's something bad happening. Like <laughs> it's almost like success is out the door if artillery is being used. It's an so area like, what, of fire weapon, feel, it's very imprecise. It's not, it's not a good situation if someone's getting artillery shot at them. <laughs> So that is a very fair point. What was the, can you just, for our, our audience, can you tell who, where, what base you were at when you were with uh, 3-7 to start with? Yeah, I was at Fob Connolly, uh, which again was in Nangarhar province. I'm not exactly sure where, but uh, our brigade was assigned to uh, what was called RC East or Regional Command East. Um and so we had the, the provinces of Nuristan, Nagarhar, Kunar, and Logman. Uh, yeah. So that's the basic geography of uh, Afghanistan where we were. Right. Which, again, for our listeners, is right on the, the Pakistan border. Um, kind of coincides with just a lot of some of the crazier missions that we've seen in Afghanistan, especially in that Kunar, Petch, Nuristan areas. We see a lot of the Medal of Honor winners and... Um, a lot of the movies and documentaries and books that have been written about Afghanistan were all in there. And so what, how did you feel when you transitioned? Because I forgot that about you where at times some of our unit, and I felt like that was true for a lot of Afghanistan, Iraq, there were, there were quiet areas and there were areas where like, you're just in the shit storm the whole time. That, that was a big shift for me. Uh, and I came to find though, uh, when I transitioned to, being a fire support officer, so being attached to an infantry unit and actually leaving the FOB, leaving the base and going out on patrols, I've, I learned that it was much easier to call for fire from aircraft than it was for artillery. And so Joyce did still call for some artillery, but I suspect that the infantry unit that was at FOB Connolly basically just relied on their air support instead of using artillery. Um, right. But you're right that some areas were much more quiet than others. And I think Connolly was in a safer spot than Joyce. 
Yeah, and I guess from my perspective, I think when we were using aircraft, whether that was Apaches, Kiowas, or the Air Force, it was usually on patrol. Um, and then I think I called in a lot more artillery strikes for base defense or counter battery type missions. If we were, got, we were getting mortars or rockets into our base, we would almost use our artillery to respond rapidly because we're not going to get helicopters in for an hour or two or longer. That's a good point. The aircraft would be assigned to a patrol that was moving off the base. So if you got hit when you were on the FOB, your best bet was to respond with mortars or artillery. And I, I will say, I'll give, I'll give a shout out to all the, the three, seven guys on FOB Joyce. I think they were, they were spot on. I can remember that they would respond within minutes and be able to get rounds out within minutes. I do though. So like, even then I kind of remember having discussions with the battalion fire support officer who was a major, either a senior captain or a major. And, um, we would wonder about whether it was beneficial to respond to counter battery fire, because typically here, I want to try to just broach the subject of kind of the yeah the asymmetry or the imbalance in firepower between us and the enemy so typically if we were we take fire on the fob it would either be like a couple guys shooting a machine gun from the ridge line that was maybe a kilometer or two kilometers away just spraying mm -hmm. a machine gun or two guys with a mortar tube that were just shelling like one mortar two mortars and that would be it right uh, for the most part, absolutely. Uh, there were there were a few days where it got worse, but there was also times where I had a Santa hat on playing volleyball outside, and we'd take a recoilless rocket that would scream overhead and smash eight feet into the ground, <laughs> ten feet away. Right, right. And I'm not saying I mean that's disturbing, obviously, but <laughs> but my point is we would respond to that with you know two guns shooting you know ten rounds or twelve rounds of high explosive or we get a, a jet to come over and drop a 500 pound bomb. And like, there were so many assets that we had to counter mm -hmm. what was basically pretty weak firepower in my right. opinion. I, I agree so, with the, you. so the discussion was basically, do we have a way to respond proportionally or not? And like, if we shoot artillery back at these counter batteries, are we gonna, you know, hit someone's farmhouse? Are we gonna hit, you know, some, you know, kid who's taking a message from one village to another, you know, there's a risk in doing that. And so we could, you know, respond with artillery. We could just do nothing. We could send a patrol out there. We talked about these things and it was pretty unclear to me as a Lieutenant, uh, what good it would do, uh, to respond like in a hard manner to these kinds of attacks. Yeah. That's, that's one of the biggest things, because if you make one mistake, it could have ramifications for an entire village that all of a sudden then turns against you, or um, you're already on a knife edge being there. And so I think at Fab Joyce and in Kunar and Petch in, in general, we had it a little bit easier because the villages were so spread out and so sporadic. And especially on some of these ridge lines, there was just nothing out there other than people that more or less just had it out for you. Um, when I was thinking about artillery rounds and that, I, I, I think a, 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 at some point you have to have the ability to, to have some firepower respond or else they're just going to continue to hit you even harder more and more. And that could lead to the kind of disasters that happened in the patch kind of earlier in the war where they get overrun or, you know, you don't want that to happen. 
Yeah, I agree. And that was on people's minds. I think that was on the, the battalion command's mind is they had to prevent the worst possible scenario, uh, which was uh, these small teams getting comfortable up on the ridge lines, and then, oh, all of a sudden they develop enough power to, to come in and uh, and overrun the base. Although I don't, I really don't think that anyone could have taken Fob Joyce, do you? No, not Fob Joyce. Uh, Fob Joyce, that would have been, yeah, probably impossible. But they could have, they could have made it a lot worse. You know, if they got comfortable up there, I mean, think about it. I think we only had maybe three or four people that whole year get hit on the base. But if they got comfortable, that could have easily been 20. You know, that could have, if one mortar round hit the, the right building, that could have been devastating. I think you're right to say that uh, it does take pretty few casualties uh, to really make a unit ineffective. I think people don't really understand, um, especially if it's the right the right people. You can really cripple a unit with with pretty small casualties. Sure. So to get back to your your story there, but that was I think a good discussion. How did you feel? You know, in terms of your own training, how how you were able to lead your guys, what you learned maybe in Afghanistan, how that maybe changed your perception of tactics, of educational military history, of military tactics. Did you did you have any kind of new ways of thinking about it throughout that time? Not really. I remember basically my main thought was just trying to survive and trying to, to allow the guys around me to survive. Um, so I didn't really have any kind of conscious things that I was trying to develop in terms of tactics or doctrine. Um, I would say that you do just become more comfortable as you, uh, exist in a deployed environment. There are certain things that you can never really prepare for. Uh, and I think those first couple times going out on patrol, uh, especially that the first couple times that your patrol gets hit, you learn whether or not you can still operate when you're highly stressed. And I think that's what, you know, the West Point training and, and the army training to some extent was trying to simulate uh, was stress. And this is why, you know, a drill instructor will get in someone's ear and yell at them to try to elevate their stress level, right? But there's nothing that can really compare to, to hearing cracking bullets or to hearing an explosion go off and then being forced to react to it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I so, I, yeah, I think that's just something that, that you really, that you have to experience. And some people are better at dealing with it than others. And I don't, I don't know that there's a whole lot of training you can do in order to steal yourself for that. No, I, I think that's West Point did a, did a good job of that. I would say even playing sports growing up for me helped in some fashion of just being disciplined because you're going to get to a certain spot where, you, you know, those rounds are coming in. And like you said, the adrenaline and stress is, is spiked and, you know, the fear is, is rising and you have to learn how to, to deal with that and still make those decisions to kind of lead those around you. And also, especially as a fire sport officer, if you're on a patrol of not, not messing up, you can't mess up, you know, you have to be able to know where you're at and then call in the rounds accurately. And you can't just be losing your mind at that point. Right. But yeah, I never, uh, I guess when I was going through training at, at West Point and in the army, you also kind of have this, a vision of doing something kind of heroic of saying, oh, there's the enemy platoon. We're going to maneuver on them and call this in and take them out. 
And I never yeah. really found that to be the case ever. In <laughs> no. Again, it was always just kind of reacting to things. It was always sure. just like, how can I get that machine gun to be silenced? I had no thought at all, whatever of, oh, <laughs> I'm going to do this thing or I'm going to lead these men up to this point. Like it was, it was really, like you said, just about being calm enough to talk on the radio, to communicate to people what you needed. Uh, and that was really the skill that was essential was being, being calm enough to, to be able to do that. Yeah, that's, that's great. I think the chaos of, of combat is, is hard to explain. You know, I don't think there's any way to really explain it with words. The, 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 the ability of the, your training is supposed to help you get through that, to, to kind of overcome the chaos, to at least take your brain down from a million miles an hour to back to that training so that you can do what you're supposed to do. But with that being said, there are ramifications to continuous combat. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, as we're, as we're slowly kind of getting into the, the end of this podcast, leading into post um military i wonder how you feel about that you know i i we we had soldiers uh ncos officers that had been deployed multiple times combat all the time i think it for me witnessing that i noticed that the longer that you saw that kind of stuff the 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 deeper impact and harder it was to overcome that yeah i i agree with you um I would say just to, to explain a little bit of like continuous combat, it was true that we were always deployed uh, to a, a somewhat dangerous area. Um, what I would say though, I've, I've been preparing for these military history courses and reading a lot about World War II. So I don't wanna give the impression that it was like that where during World War II, uh, soldiers would do an operation for a month and be in combat that entire month. Whereas in Afghanistan, it was more like we would train up for an operation for a month and then that would last, you know, three, four, maybe five days. I think you might've gone on some operations that were even a week long or two weeks, but right. it wasn't the same kind of continuous operations uh, that, they were, that they were doing. Can you expand upon that? That's actually, a, I, I think that's a good thing for people to understand. And that's something that, you know, I've had conversations with my friends and maybe others about what it was like out there. Can you maybe just talk just briefly about what your day-to-day -day life was? Because I honestly would tell some people that my, some of my favorite memories in life were in Afghanistan, talking with you and Jared and Colin and Angel and some of these other guys late at night for hours at a time. Yeah, it was, again, a very kind of a uh, split atmosphere in Afghanistan where on the FOB, because you lived there on the forward operating base, uh, that became your home. And so we would, you know, go to the mess hall and sit together and, and have a nice dinner and nice conversation. We would go and play poker in a room with the other lieutenants and smoke a cigar and joke around. And so that became kind of your day-to-day -day life. Uh, and even the, the patrols that we were doing around the FOB, a lot of times they weren't combat patrols. It was a patrol to go talk to the district sub-governor and ask him how politics was going in his area. Or it yeah, was speak gonna... for yourself until they drive a V-bit up and try to blow up your entire patrol. Okay, well, that was a rare occurrence. But anyway, <laughs> there were other things where, you know, we were going to try to, you know, give economic stimulus to some local business leaders. Sure. There were other times when we were literally just going out because we were like, we're going to, you know, give pens and candy to some group of kids out here. Right. 
And that was the day-to-day, and that was typically what we were supposed to be doing for a counterinsurgency effort, was trying to build relationships with the people and trying to train the Afghan forces. Those were supposed to be our two main missions. And then, uh, because as you alluded to earlier, we were in this uh, more kinetic area, more active in terms of Taliban, um, we would do these operations in which we were going looking for a fight. Um, and that was the, that was atypical. That was something that would only happen tip maybe once a month, maybe once every two months, uh, during the deployment. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I just would like to, to hear a little bit more from you on, you know, so you, you come from Afghanistan where you see almost everything you train for, whether that was at West Point, what you signed up for from going all the way back to nine 11, you kind of expected that in some ways. And now you get to Afghanistan, you complete a pretty you know, tough deployment. So you finish Afghanistan, you continue in the army for a couple of years. What made you then decide to do something different? I would say even at the beginning, even at West Point, I didn't think that I was going to stay in the army for a career. Uh, again, because of the United States being involved in war, I, I thought that that was important. And when I came back from Afghanistan, I felt like I had fulfilled that duty. Uh, and a lot of what I saw in Afghanistan convinced me that I didn't want to stick around and do that again. Um, right. And that's maybe <laughs> subject for another podcast. We can get all into the the you know the strategic problems that we had the the problems with careerism of officers maybe uh, looking out for their own uh, evaluation report rather than what was best for Afghanistan but uh, so there was some disillusionment there um, and and basically I, I I took from the army that I really did enjoy training soldiers that I really did like the process of taking someone in who had no knowledge of a topic and then at least giving them some tools that they could work on themselves or giving them some new ideas. Uh, and then as they became more proficient, giving them some confidence. And that was really the, what I, I loved about the army was seeing young soldiers become confident at their job. And for a lot of these kids, it's the first time they've ever thought, Hey, I I'm actually able to do something. This is something that I'm good at. Um, so yeah, that's something that I, I wanted to continue in academia rather than in the army. Um, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear just continue on that path. So when you get into academia, how do you take that train of thought and, and where do you go from there? Yeah, I, I got to Indiana after my five years in the army uh, in 2014 and pretty quickly um, I realized that I wanted to continue to study military history uh, in I, when I got out of the army, in some ways, I thought I was really turning a big page in my life and was just going to study history, wanted to kind of leave the army behind me. Um, but the more I talked to people on campus, the more they were interested in my military past. I was fairly unique in being a veteran um, in the history department. And um, I also realized that I had some kind of uh, questions in my own mind that were unresolved and that I thought I could uh, at least start to get the answers to by looking at the the past of the United States uh, in terms of, again, how we found ourselves in Afghanistan, uh, how we found ourselves confident in the mission of nation building, uh, 
what I came to see as really kind of a, a new kind of imperialism um, that really has a deep history in the United States and that I really gained an appreciation for in graduate school. Um, so to continue though, my, my passion for training though, uh, it wasn't until I got into the classroom and started teaching that I found that that was really my passion and that I love research too, but uh, there's nothing that beats uh, getting that immediate feedback from students and, and introducing them to new ideas. That's awesome. For a while, you didn't really know where you were going to go. And it almost seemed just, again, fortuitous. Something came open for you with a Citadel. And I'd love to hear just what you're going to do there, how that came about. I applied for a bunch of different positions, but this was always the number one on my list. And so I was really grateful to get the opportunity to come here. Uh, this fall, I'll be teaching a survey course on a mili American military history. And then I'll be teaching an upper level course on leadership in military history. Awesome. So you got the, the cat there in the background. Just The cats are excited about these classes. <laughs> about the Citadel as well. Over there in uh, Charleston, how's how's the weather out there? It's hot, hot and muggy. Yeah. Had some thunderstorms today, but yeah, I'm enjoying my time here and uh, excited to get started with it. And maybe we could just uh, end this podcast by talking about a, a project that I hope to do uh, in conjunction with these courses I'm teaching. And that's what we're doing right now is just developing what I see as oral histories through a podcast. Uh, because one of the things that I noticed when I was my uh, dissertation and my research is all about 19th century history. Uh, and the, the frustrating thing about that is you can never interview these people, right? They've all been dead for a hundred and some years. So I really wanted to, to develop this idea of what kind of questions would I ask my sources if they were still alive? Uh, and we have this opportunity now through podcasts. Uh, and so that's something that I want to explore uh, by talking to other veterans uh, and other people who have been through stressful situations, first responders um, and other people like that to to be able to understand what that experience is like and try to communicate that to other people. Yes, I think that's going to be a really fun endeavor. I think it's going to be a fun project. Um, I'm excited to see where you take it. Um, I'm excited to be a part of that. But I want to hear also why you feel stories are important, because we've talked about this countless times. I think hearing a person's story and allowing them to tell their story is not only good for history's sake, but it's also good for that person to, to be able to tell their story. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that's one of the easiest ways that we have to organize our thoughts. Um, I think at least for me, story holds a kind of power uh, that any list of facts or any analysis can't really capture. Uh, and there's something about history that appeals to me is that it's partly uh, science and partly about evidence and partly about uh, rigorous methods, but it's also about the art of being able to tell a story. It's also about the art of being able to connect to people uh, and being able to understand where does the story start uh, and where does the story end and asking those kinds of questions. Uh, and so I think by talking to more and more people, I've been able to understand my own story better too. It's really only by 
talking to, to you and our other friends in the army that I've been able to grasp what my own experience meant. Sure. Now, what do you, when you see Lionheart Junction, the Hero Hut and this podcast, where do you, what initially kind of piqued your interest? It was really um, a couple things. When I was at Indiana University, I got involved uh, with a professor in the media school named Ron Osgood, who's a Vietnam veteran, and he did an oral history project, and I helped him to edit some of the interviews. Uh, and then when I heard about the Hero Hut uh, and the Milwaukee Irish Fest, um, I really jumped at the opportunity that you offered me to go up and talk to some of the Vietnam veterans and to help record their stories. Uh, and so that was really what made me feel like this is something that's beneficial, uh, like you said, not only to other people who are curious about the military um, or researchers, but also for the people uh, who want to express themselves and who want to try to process, because in order to tell the story, you have to make decisions in your own mind about what was the most important thing and what that meant. Yeah, I thought I thought it was kind of fascinating when you just a little bit ago mentioned that you had your own questions and parts in your own thoughts that you needed to process at IU or after you got out of the army. I think in some fashion, being able to connect to others as we're building Lionheart Junction, the Hero Hut, the story aspect of that has grown in my view to be very important and it's been fun to see you take hold of that because you're someone that has a passion for that deep inside that you you enjoy just recording that listening to others and, and letting them tell their stories you're very intelligent in how you do that you're effective at that and it's I think it's important I think everyone needs to be able to talk about their story and everyone has that that innate value inside and it's just, especially from the veteran perspective, if you've seen a lot, oftentimes you don't get a chance to, to tell your story. Or we'll just only, we'll only reach out to those that maybe seem like they're history book worthy. <laughs> right. There is that, there is that, uh, that trend I've noticed that oftentimes the people who have been through the most are the most reluctant to share their stories. Um, and so hopefully that's something that, that we can explore with this podcast and, and really try to, to get people to open up what their experiences have meant um, and really broaden the conversation about the military. Uh, because I think a lot of people don't know about it and I think a lot of people are afraid to ask about it. Uh, mm. So I, I think this could be a really beneficial space for people to both share and uh, learn. Um, I think that we have a lot of problems as a society right now and uh, one of the problems I see is that groups are becoming more and more separated and there doesn't seem to be a lot of conversation across the aisle um, in terms of America's partisan politics. And I hope that this could be uh, a place where people can feel free to speak and not have something automatically be attached to a political agenda, uh, that we're just sharing stories about experiences and, and maybe some people will connect to some things and maybe some people will realize how different they are. Um, but that's all important. And I think unless people are willing to uh, get out there and share and make themselves a little bit vulnerable, I think we risk uh, having that situation that we see sometimes today where people are just not listening to each other. So I'm optimistic about the future and, and about the, 
the possibilities for us to really have open communication. Yeah, I'm really excited about the podcast. I think, you know, just from talking to you, just some of the ideas that you've come up with, there's going to be a lot of exciting guests on that you could you could really just explore a lot of different cool topics. Um, but also, you know, even even when we look at Lionheart Junction and the Hero Hut, that it was really cool to be able to sit down with different people and have, you know, a couple hundred to a couple thousand people just come and, and share stories, be able to sit down at a table maybe with a coffee or a beer and 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 talk to generations of veterans or have police officers coming out there and first responding, you know, uh, EMTs and, and veterans all just sharing a table and, and talking about their experience. So I thought that was really cool at the Milwaukee Irish Fest. Yeah, it was. Um, so I'm excited for that to come back. We've got these weird COVID times going on. So until then, we're moving the community online. And I think this is a good step. We're doing this over uh, over the internets. And so uh, we'll see what we can do in the future in terms of growing it and uh, growing this online podcast community. Yeah, Jake, thanks for allowing me to be a, a guest host on your podcast here. It's, you know, I appreciate you telling us your story and look forward to seeing where this goes. Of course. Happy to be here. Thanks a lot, Dave.